As Americans, you know that there is safety in numbers. There is safety in numbers. This is true when you're camping out with friends in the Red River Gorge and a black bear wanders into the camp area. As long as you can outrun at least one other person, you'll be okay. There's safety in numbers. You know this is true when you're out running at night. Let's be honest, some strange people live in our community and they come out at night. And it can be a little creepy. There are sa there's safety in numbers when you've been shopping and you go out to an empty parking lot or an empty parking garage and your hands are full of boxes and bags and you only have one hand free. There's safety in numbers. At Wheaton College and at Asbury University, the schools will send out students over the summer months uh, to, in a sense, pry their hands at things like gospel preaching, leading worship, uh, leading Bible studies in small groups. And these schools always send out these students in teams. They never send a student out alone. Um, if you're by yourself and you have a tough crowd, it's a tough message. You think you've done all the prep work. Believe me, I've been there. You put work into a message and you think it's amazing and you deliver the message and it kind of goes from here and it goes, plop. Falls on, and you're like, well, that didn't work. That didn't connect. People weren't having that, right? And those days can happen and you can beat yourself up. Um, when you're by yourself and you're leading worship and one of your guitar strings breaks mid-set, right? It can be tough. These things can be tough. With a partner or with a group, you can weather setbacks better. Have you ever noticed that Mormon missionaries, when they come to your house, they never come alone? They're always in pairs. There's always at least two of them, right? They're always on mission with someone else or with a team. And so today, it's really simple. We know ourselves in relationship. We know our true selves in relationship. Isolated and alone, we tend to be overly critical of ourselves, most of us. Uh, we tend to be, get overly discouraged by the results of our efforts, and we tend to be overly prone to giving up or walking away by ourselves. Sean Acker, who's an Harvard psychologist, has conducted Dozens of studies about how people can thrive under stress, and this is what he concludes. Quote, the people who survive stress the best are the ones who actually increase their social investments in the middle of stress, which is the opposite of what most of us do. When most of us find ourselves in a set of circumstances, financial hardship, relational hardship, we tend to kind of slink away and back away. And that's actually the opposite of what's most helpful from us. And often what drives us away is this sense of shame, this feeling that we're not enough. Remember, shame is different from guilt. Shame is different from conviction. Shame is this overwhelming sense that you are not enough. Conviction and guilt is about actions. Conviction and guilt moves you forward. Shame paralyzes you and sticks you and stucks you and all of that kind of blick gobbledygook stuff. By the way, Jesus doesn't shame. When we are in the resurrected life, once again, as in the Garden of Eden, we will feel no shame. In the presence of God, there will be no shame. Uh, Jesus will speak the truth to us. Jesus will convict us of sinful actions, sinful attitudes. 
um, sinful thoughts, but Jesus doesn't shame people. Romans 8.34, who will then condemn us, the Apostle Paul says. Know what he answers? No one. No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Jesus knows that we have this tendency when we're alone to be overly critical, overly discouraged, and overly prone to giving up. And that's why he sends people out in pairs. <laughs> we're going to be in Luke's gospel today, Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10. And I want to read these passages to you, and then we're going to look at some things together. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. One day, Jesus called together his 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, Jesus said. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. The very next chapter, he sends out more disciples, more than just the 12. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples, Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places that he planned to visit. These were the instructions he gave them. The harvest is great, Jesus said, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever's set before you. Heal the sick. Tell them the kingdom of God is near now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, we wipe the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near I assure you, Jesus said, even wicked Sodom will be better off than at such a town on Judgment Day. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their head to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, you, will you be honored in heaven? Nope you'll go down to the place of the dead. And then Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even demons obey us when we use your name. 
Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Jesus sends out his disciples with the same authority. It's not different authority. It's not like Jesus was like, I got the Uber authority, and now I'm taking level 27 authority. And here you go, Don. Here's level 27 authority. That's all I'm entrusting you with. No, he sent them out with the same authority. And so they, in the name of Jesus, heal the sick. In the name of Jesus, they cast demons out of people because it's giving evidence that the rule of God is breaking into human history. Heaven is coming to earth. God can deliver us from the powers that enslave us. And in verse 2 of chapter 9, they're sent to tell and heal. Okay? The telling part of the mission is the proclamation that the kingdom of God is near. Today, our proclamation is the gospel, the good news of what God has done and is doing through the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The healing part of the mission is performing deeds of compassionate service, okay? So they're sent out trusting God's care and provision and directly engaging the people that they're ministering to. They're going out to minister. In other words, they're not waiting for people to come to them. Picking up on that? <laughs> so Jesus tells them to shake the dust off their feet. I don't know if you've ever thought of this or wondered, like, what is going on? That is so weird. Like, I don't even, you know, what is that? So Jews, pious Jews of the first century would shake their dust, would shake the dust off their sandals, off their feet after visiting a Gentile city, uh, like uh, what would uh, Caesarea. So if they were in Caesarea or uh, uh, what's another city that starts with an Missing on Antioch, right? Antioch, Caesarea, Alexandria. So these highly Greco-Roman Gentile cities, a pious Jew going through town. Oh my goodness, I can't touch anything. I can't interact with anything. It's going to make me unclean. And when they leave the city, they shake the dust off to basically say, I'm not part of what's going on in that Gentile city. I am different. I'm set apart. Not me. All of that, not me. <laughs> okay? And so... Jesus tells them to adopt this practice when they're going to towns that reject the disciples. And it's an indication that the people in town are making a bad choice. They're making the wrong choice. They're rejecting the Messiah that God is sending them. And the opportunity may not come around again. Okay? Uh, it's the rough equivalent today. Americans will use this expression, I wash my hands of it. Meaning, I've done everything that I can do, and what happens now, it's not on me. I've I washed my hands of it. I'm, you know, I've done my part. I'm done. That's the closest thing I can come in American speak to shake the dust off your feet. So if the disciples and their message are rejected, they're told to move on. I don't know if you know this, but there are people, there have been people, there will be people who reject Jesus and reject the gospel. It happens. It happens with regularity. 
God's love is not forced on anyone. God's redemption is not forced on anyone. God does not force himself on people. People have the ability to say yay or nay. So Jesus places this link between himself and his messengers. To hear the disciples is to hear Jesus. To reject the disciples is to reject Jesus. It's roughly akin to the way countries send out ambassadors. So the United States of America, most of you are Americans in this room, your country that you live in and that you're citizens of sends ambassadors all around the world. So the United States has ambassadors in Rome, in Vatican City, in London, England, you know, Poland, and then every country on the continent of Africa, which is three times the size of the United States, okay? So, so Americans got ambassadors everywhere. And if a country mistreats the American ambassador, it's akin to mistreating America because the ambassador represents America. So that's kind of how that works, right? And so the disciples are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They represent Jesus. We represent Jesus. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, my father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal himself. And then in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the father through me. I'll often say at Generations that if you want the clearest picture of God, and you're trying to answer the basic questions of who is God, what is God like, how do I know, the clearest picture we have is Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. You want to know what drives God's God nuts? Look to Jesus. You want to know what makes God rejoice? Look to Jesus and his teaching. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the clearest picture we have of God because Jesus is God. So when someone says, I don't need Jesus, they're saying they don't need God. They're saying something significant, which is what Jesus has to say in this passage in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 through 15. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick, tell them the kingdom of God is near. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we've abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. And I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. Now look, you and I are Americans, and we're living in this strange time in America where I'm just going to be honest. Most Americans that I talk to, they kind of sort of believe in an afterlife, and they kind of sort of believe that everybody eventually gets there, somehow, some way, because God is loving, right? And so they kind of piece this hodgepodge thing together. But if Jesus is God, and Jesus... It gives us this clear picture of God, then Jesus is telling us that there's some sorting of people. And I'm not going to be one of those pastors that does the whole thing, well, most people are condemned or most people are saved. I don't know. I just know enough about Jesus to know that I trust him and I trust his judgment. And when he makes the last call on judgment day, I'm not going to be raising my hand and going, foul, technical foul, bad call, Jesus. You stink. I would never do that. Like, that's not going to happen. He is trustworthy. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. His call is a good call. So 
I gotta wonder in the context of being sent out to represent Jesus, sent out to, to announce that the kingdom of God is near, sent out to heal the sick and cast out demons, if when they encountered these moments where somebody at the door says, yeah, you, you can't stay here. Or if they entered a city and they were like, no, this stuff, that's whack, you're whack, this whole thing is whack, move along. I wonder if the disciples had to say to each other, hey, hey, Peter, don't take it personally, man. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the boss. Like, <laughs> this is about Jesus, this isn't about you, right? Let it roll off, like, it's not you, it's not your identity, right? And so, I wonder if the same thing had to happen in moments where there was amazing stuff taking place, and people were healed, and demons were expelled, and they had to be like, hey, hey, remember, Levi, like, that's not you, that's the, that's the boss, man, like, that's the kingdom of God breaking in, you can't take credit for that, like, let that roll off your shoulders, don't get a big head over that. I just wonder if that had to play out as they were being sent out in pairs and in teams. Uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, in an article in Christianity Today, echoes this idea that we know our true selves in relationship, particularly in the relationship of the church family. She says this, God designed church to be the place where our most important identity formation occurs among other people. We become more like Christ as we participate in the life of the church and form relationships there. But too often we think we must have our spiritual house in order before we can fully participate. Or by contrast, we see the church of, as a place of performance instead of a place where we're developed into more fully authentic, that is, more Christ-like humans. Let me ask a couple of questions. And the first question is simply this. How much freedom would you have if you could face rejection from others and not have it affect your worth or value as a person? How much freedom would that be? It would be a lot. It would be amazing. And what dust do you need to shake off? In other words, what dulls your light? Jesus called us salt and light. What's dulling this Jesus thing in you these days? Okay? How can you and I take this home? First of all, I got great news for you, or I got news that's going to scare you a little bit. You and I are sent. We're sent, not just in this room with the cool things on the walls, but like we're sent out there, and out there can be scary, like a parking garage in the middle of the night, <laughs> which is why it's good to be in pairs and good not to do this sentness thing alone, okay? You and I are sent. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. Um, I want to read this passage to you. Uh, let's see. 20, 19, 22. Uh, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. I'm going to guess that you and I are in a similar boat. There's things that we're afraid of here in America. We're afraid of things for our kids. We're afraid of things for ourselves. There's a lot of kinds of legitimate and illegitimate fears that we have. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, Jesus says. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive another's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. And then in Luke chapter 10, uh, that whole section that we were just in, you're going to be accepted and rejected, and sometimes that acceptance and rejection is going to happen because you're following Jesus. Jesus made it very clear in his many teachings that the way that he's treated by people, when you identify with him, you can expect similar treatment. Some people are going to be like, yeah. Some people are going to be like, boo. <laughs> That's just how it is. And you got to expect it comes with the territory, okay? But you and I are sent. We're sent. The second thing I want to draw out of this is that we know our true selves with appropriate transparency. Um, I love all of the smiling pictures of all y'all and all the people I know on Instagram and Facebook. I love seeing the pictures. I do. But social media has way too much potential for deception. So the picture of the romantic dinner that doesn't document the fight that happened on the way there, um, the, the picture of the wonderful smiling four-year-old that doesn't show the 20 deleted photos of that same kid going, I'm not taking my picture. Like, you know, so social media has this potential, this potential for deception, okay? And healthy community is appropriately transparent. Transparency means allowing the right people to see what is, okay? Remember, confession Confession is simply acknowledging what is. Confession is acknowledging what is and naming reality. And we have to confess the truth, speak the truth, live the truth, know the truth to ever have a chance of being set free. Okay? So I want to suggest to you that there's like a continuum. On the hearness of Sunday morning, if you're having a rough time or a rough season and somebody does the, how are you today? You can say, I'm here. I'm here. That's an appropriate answer. And for the person that's hearing that, I want to coach you on a couple of responses. You can say, oh, okay. You can ask the question, is there anything you want to talk about? And if they say no, then you just say, I'm glad you're here today. Okay? And that's a way that we can support one another in being appropriately transparent. And then when you're in smaller settings, maybe you're out to lunch after church, or you're in one of the many groups or classes that take place, maybe you'll give... Uh, a little bit more feet to the I'm here-ness. And you'll say, well, right now, you know, financial hardship is to hit Team Vanderpool. And here's a couple of things that we're dealing with right now. And I'm not sure where the solution is. And I haven't have it, I don't have it figured out. And maybe within the context of that group or class, there might be one person that you're able in to aside to go into great detail. But I want you to think about the levels of appropriateness in being transparent. And I simply want to ask this question, where and with whom are you transparent? Where and with whom are you simply speaking the truth, confessing the truth, okay? That's the first thing. And the second thing is we know our true selves with appropriate accountability. In a healthy community, people will point out concerns they have about your life. They will. It's just like family, when family's around the dinner table and somebody brings the person that they're dating and then afterward, after dinner, the siblings and everybody's like, what are you bringing that person here? And you have no business with them and they're not good for you. And here's the decisions that you're making. And what are you, stupid? And all the kind of family stuff that plays out, right? They're doing that because they love you, not because they want to ruin your life. It's the opposite, actually, okay? 
So in a healthy community, people will point out concerns they have about your life. They'll love you enough to call you out when you're living short of your true self. And so in order to talk about this, I want to talk about a difference between uh, performance and, say, editability. So in the 1990s in American Christianity, we had this movement called the Promise Keepers. And I loved it because uh, it called men to live their faith. And it enabled, and it said to American men, you can follow Jesus, and it's a good thing. Um, it encouraged men to look out for people uh, that were in, they were in relationship. Love your wives, uh, live for God, strive for holiness, allow God to transform you, keep your promises, right? The whole point of the movement. But some of the questions that you would ask in Promise Keeper accountability groups was nothing but performance questions. In other words, uh, the, and I'm pulling these from meetings I remember in the 90s because I was in these groups. Um, what one sin has plagued you this week? And you, and you say the sin. Did you look at a woman the wrong way? Um, are you in total obedience to God? And after answering that question, those questions, you could often feel like, okay, well, I need to confess that I am a total failure as a Christian today. <laughs> I have blown it. Like, thank goodness there's grace, right? Like, so um, again, condemned people tend to be paralyzed people. So I want to recommend a couple of uh, several questions that are more along the lines of edit ability, right? Um, and I think AA is helpful in that regard. So I've been to some AA meetings, and one of the things about AA meetings is you've got a sponsor, you've got a coach, and, and they're going uh, to listen to you, uh, they're going to coach you, and yes, they're going to confront you, but they're not going to condemn you because they want you to come back. They want you to live the life that God is calling you to live, right? So here's a couple of questions I'd recommend instead. What are, what are your primary thoughts and feelings this week? What are the thoughts that keep coming up in your head? What are the feelings that have kept coming up to the surface or below the surface? Why? What are you believing about God these days, about who he is and what he's promised? And that can draw out so much more without necessarily leading to condemnation, leaving the accountability, right? Okay? And so I simply want to ask the question, where and with whom do you have accountability? I, I'm going to turn 55 this year. I am not smart enough, bright enough, capable enough, disciplined enough, fast enough to do this thing by myself. I'm not. I need other people. I need partners. I need pairs. I need team. I need brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Because uh, there's going to be these moments of acceptance where there's risks. There's going to be moments of the rejection where there's risks. And so I need that kind of identity formation that comes in the context of community, and so do you, so do you. Um, when I was a student at Wheaton College, uh, my roommate just killed me all the time. One, he just never did laundry, and the clothes would pile up in the middle of the room, and it would get this high, like stomach high, and it smelled. Oh my goodness, Andrew, if you're listening, I love you, <laughs> okay, but it smelled. Okay, and then, uh, he, he wouldn't, like, he just got a perfect score in every class. He got a perfect score on the SAT. Like, he was just that guy, brainiac guy, right? And you would never think that we could live together in a dormitory room, but it sort of worked most of the time. But it was that partnership. We, we 
I can't tell you how many things I took risks to do in college that were not my personality. I don't know if you know this, but I helped start an underground newspaper at Wheaton College that got us in trouble with the president of the college. <laughs> um, we went prayer walking on a regular basis, praying for the city of Wheaton, praying that God would move on, on Wheaton's campus. Um, we started underground prayer groups to pray for revival. Like, this is not Max Vanderpool stuff. Max Vanderpool stuff is sit back, let somebody else do that, let somebody else lead. Like, tell me what to do, I'll do it, you know. That's my default thing. And so it's an amazing thing that happens when you're doing this, again, in pairs and in community. And so I want to leave you with a passage that I've come to several times. And this is Jesus speaking to us. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and the burden I give you is light.